Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome to the SASPOD Gregory Maxwell Bruce, aka Max, who is currently teaching Urdu at Stanford as well as at Berkeley. He has his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, and his research interests lie at the intersection of literary aesthetics, intellectual history, and religious studies. He has about four book projects going on, which we will talk about in detail. He writes Ghazal poetry in Urdu and Persian, and he has performed at Mushairas and other literary events in the United States and India. Max, welcome to the SASPOD. Apart from clearly incredibly busy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You do a lot, um, and we're gonna talk about all of it. Um, so let's start. <laughs> Sorry to do this to you, but let's start with that question. I'm sure you've been asked a thousand, if not a million times already, why South Asia? <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I have been asked the question many times, but it's it, it's always a welcome one to receive. That's a great question. Um, That's generous of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> My journey uh, in the study of South Asia has been a very long, uh, winding one. Uh, it began with uh, a kind of uh, a broad interest in uh, South Asian art, uh, music in particular, um, friends uh, of South Asian background mainly uh, that I grew up with uh, in Southern California, uh, and, um, you know, a love of uh, South Asian food. Uh, and so a, a kind of a very general sort of superficial interest uh, led me uh, actually by chance uh, to take uh, some Hindi classes when I was an undergraduate. And uh, it didn't take long uh, for me to realize that uh, the uh, two career paths that I was following, uh, one into uh, the life of a musician uh, and the other uh, running parallel to that one uh, as a uh, sort of in preparation to become a lawyer, uh, were not as exciting uh, as the study of language and history and religion and culture. Um, and um, I, uh, I just decided that uh, this is something I wanted to try. And um, I got a fellowship from the American Institute of Indian Studies to study Urdu in Lucknow and uh, moved there, spent two years there, went to graduate school, and here I am. Yeah, uh, I sort of never really looked back. Uh, yeah, but um, I, I, I love that. It's it's very succinct how you describe it. Um, I also love how you have these kind of two 
probably somewhat conflicting trajectories in mind, being a musician, um, i.e. following a passion and probably being poor uh, and uh, becoming a lawyer, uh, possibly uh, reverse, uh, not sure. Um, and that how the study of Hindi really cut through that, which is uh, it's kind of my trajectory too, where where language really was, you know, so much became the focal point of my very, very broad interest. Uh, you you skipped over somewhat neatly um, <laughs> the transition from Hindi to Urdu. Is there a story there? Um, yes, uh, it's kind Do of- Do you a, want to share it with us? Uh, gladly. It, I think the, my hesitation is only firstly that it's it's sort of complicated and secondly that uh, it's an old memory, uh, and so it's not always as clear in my memory as it as it once was. Um, so I I I started studying Hindi because I I actually wanted to take Arabic at the time, and uh, the Arabic class was offered at the same time as a class on the rationalists. I was a philosophy major, uh -huh. and so I had to take this class on mostly on Descartes, uh, which um, all due respect I thought was a total waste of time. I didn't enjoy it at all. Right. Uh, and so I, uh, I couldn't take Arabic. Uh, and um, I just decided to take Hindi. Um, because I, as I mentioned before, because I was interested in uh, Indian classical music, I had the great fortune of studying uh, uh, the Raga system with Ali Akbar Khan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had been exposed to sort of South Asian uh, intellectual and artistic traditions through the study of um, Indian rhythms and uh, compositional theory. Wow! And so um, I thought, hey, you know, uh, and I, I, I had friends growing up who were Hindi and Urdu speakers, I, as I mentioned, uh, and uh, because uh, I loved Indian food. Uh, and so I thought, well, why not? Uh, I'll take Hindi. Um, and uh, so I took Hindi uh, for two years. Uh, the following year, uh, there was no conflict with Arabic, and so I took Arabic as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, by the end of taking uh, that process of taking Hindi uh, for the two years, uh, I had come to learn about Urdu. Uh, I don't think I knew about it uh, when I started with Hindi. Uh, and I thought, well, this is really neat. You know, I mean, here's a language that uses the Arabic script. Um, you know, I've done two years of Hindi. I've worked a lot with Nagari. Uh, I've read a whole bunch of, you know, Hindi literature now. Um, why don't I see if I can get a fellowship to study Urdu, which wasn't offered at my uh, undergraduate university. We had uh, a kind of a script class or a script unit. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thought was sort of uh, initially it was to balance. Yeah. Uh, two uh -huh. years of Hindi. Let's do some Urdu to yeah. kind of balance uh, yeah. and have both traditions um, and uh, when I moved to India, I fell in love with uh, my teachers in the city of Lucknow, and I ended up st uh, studying tabla. One part of the story that I left out was that I initially went to India with the intention of studying Urdu, but also studying tabla and uh, briefly considered turning that earlier interest in music into a career in ethnomusicology. Um, but um, I think it was pretty soon after that process began uh, that I decided uh, literature, language, history, these were things that, I don't know, I'm not sure why exactly, but I just found them fascinating, increasingly fascinating. And mm. uh, they really facilitated uh, the making of friends and the growing of relationships with you know, members of the Urdu community. And so I, I think that that was what really uh, kind of kept me, kept me going and motivated 
uh, yeah. Um, before um, people email us to point this out, we are aware that Hindi and Urdu are uh, in many ways the same language. And, and it's, it's interesting how in the academy, um, in certain places, the focus is much more on, on the kind of the similarity uh, rather than the distinction. And in other places, they're really taught as two completely separate um, entities. And we don't have to talk about that now, we can. Um, but I just wanted to point out that we at the SASPOT <laughs> are aware that they're um, uh, that those are not two the completely distinct traditions of language, I guess, is what I want to say. Of course, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so um, four books. Did I get that right? You haven't corrected me yet, so I imagine it's true? Uh, that's true. I have four that are... <laughs> under contract and and or forthcoming yes uh, all right well uh, let's start with one and work our way down to four and how did you how did you can i just say mistime this so badly i mean the thought of having four all in similar stages at the same time how did how did you let that happen <laughs> well i think part of the issue is that through covid um i didn't start all of them at the same time right and uh, they were in various stages of completion. Uh, and what sort of has happened is that bottlenecking of various kinds at presses, in my schedule, in my teaching schedule, has kind of led them all to be more or less now at the same stage, which is to say the final stages of uh, revision or in the proofing stage, uh, kind of all at the same time. So some of that is just happenstance. Fair <laughs> But in, in, in the case of two of the books, uh, it's actually, they're complementary volumes, they're interrelated. Uh, and so the projects of both of those texts began at more or less the same time and the intention was to publish them uh, at the same time. So I guess we could start talking about those. So I sure. maybe explain what I mean. One of, they're both edited volumes. Okay. One of them is a facsimile edition of a, Persian manuscript mm -hmm. uh, of a moral miscellany that was written uh, in the middle of the 14th century, uh, right at the end of the, uh, sort of right before the kind of collapse and dissolution of the Ilkhanid uh, empire. And it's a moral miscellany that was written in imitation of the Gulistan of Saadi, uh, which itself uh, is, of course, a really important book uh, in uh, in, in Urdu literature and in Persianate uh, literatures of South Asia. Um, and the companion uh, uh, book is uh, what I mentioned earlier is an edited uh, English translation of that book. It's the first and only English translation of that book, uh, but it's not by me. Uh, it's by a 19th century Orientalist. Uh, and it is, um, uh, a translation that uh, has existed only in uh, manuscript for the past uh, 130 some odd years. This um, uh, book had, had not been critically edited at the time. And because the manuscript that Rahatsik used was one of three and he put notes all over the margins of the Persian manuscript uh, because he was of course uh, sort of compiling something like a critical edition for himself to use as the basis right. of his translation, uh, I approached Mazda publishers in Costa Mesa about the possibility of publishing that as a facsimile edition 
Uh, and so uh, wrote an introduction, uh, sort of looking at the history of the text, the author about whom very little has been written, but who was actually quite influential, uh, um, especially in the, the Timurid period. He was influential on uh, Hussein Vayez Kashfi, uh, and I think to some extent, another major Persian uh, writer uh, of the Rahman Jami, both of whom were also very influential. Uh, in uh, the Safavid Mughal period, uh, and particularly at the Mughal court, and then into uh, the colonial period in India as well. So the legacy of this text is one that bears directly on uh, the study of uh, Persianate literatures like Urdu, uh, in addition, of course, uh, to Persian literature itself uh, in, in, uh, in the subcontinent. Um, and so uh, the facsimile edition is likewise, hopefully, uh, going to be out. Uh, this year uh, with Costa Mesa. And the idea was to um, present uh, the text as uh, that is the source of the translation alongside the translation, but the, the book itself is uh, so massive that it didn't make sense to publish uh, them as a single volume. So will so you, like, I'm just thinking about the practicalities. Will they link to each other, like on the web? Because these are two different publishers. So will they talk about the other ones? Because it's nice to know for people that want to buy the translation that they could look at the original and vice versa. That is the hope. Uh, they're certainly referenced uh, in the in the books themselves. Right. Um, but, uh, and uh, uh, Mazda uh, has worked with the Royal Asiatic Society. And so the hope is that, uh, um, that is uh, on this particular project, and so the hope is that uh, there will be some communication. So the other two books are actually uh, much uh, much easier to explain in a sense. Um, the so I mentioned to you that my main sort of monograph right now is uh, a study of um, Shibli Nomani, uh, this very uh, celebrated uh, historian, theologian, and literary critic uh, who wrote mostly in Urdu, but also wrote in Persian and Arabic. Uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so that's uh, the what has happened is I have this um, uh, work uh, that's uh, forthcoming with Brill. Uh, um, it's just a translation of Mirkat uh, with some annotations and a, a very, very uh, long introduction uh, that kind of looks at uh, the, uh, the place of uh, really Arabic rationalism, but through the lens of this text, uh, in um, uh, the, the training of Muslim intellectuals in particular, uh, but more broadly, the training of rationalist thinkers uh, at the turn of the um, uh, 19th century, which is when this book was written. And the fourth uh, uh, book uh, grows out of some, um, some references in Shibli's uh, intellectual life uh, to uh, to brudge uh, to brudge literature, this kind of um, what's been called by some, uh, including our shared uh, teacher Rupert Snell, uh, the um, the the Hindi classical tradition, right? Um, and so I uh, I studied a lot of Braj Basha uh, with uh, Rupert Snell when I was in graduate school. Uh, one of the most rewarding and inspiring. Uh, intellectual experiences of my life yes. uh, without question. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so I, I started kind of digging around in Shibli's intellectual world uh, and looking at some of the texts that were circulating uh, around him, uh, ones that he referenced himself and ones that he 
uh, would have seen uh, simply by virtue of uh, where he was uh, 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 geographically and in terms of the institutions that he was associated with. And so the fourth book uh, is a translation with some uh, notes on Lalujilal and uh, an attempt to kind of rethink uh, the narrative about him uh, as this kind of, you know, figure who takes part in this project to divorce Hindi and Urdu uh, at, uh, and, and sort of define them really uh, at um, the, the Fort William College. Um, and uh, so that's what I sort of do in the introduction. There's some notes and you know, things like that in there as well. When I hear you speak about all these projects, language is not the medium. Language is the thing. And it's like it's the entity that you are in conversation with. And I appreciate that so much. And um, it, it makes me quite emotional in a way because it's just... Um, it's so not where the academy is in many ways. And so I want to move or kind of seg into your language teaching by um, the reviews I've heard, and these are anecdotal, but you okay. are a phenomenal language teacher. And that doesn't surprise me at all um, because you clearly bring your whole full self into the classroom. Language teaching um, in the United States, although I think it's probably um, uh, true, uh, in many places, uh, not super valued, uh, definitely seen as the kind of, um, I know, I don't want to say second class because I don't want to give it that kind of hierarchy, but I, I often, I mean, I have taught language and um, I feel that language teaching, and when I say language teaching, I mean of, of languages that are either not native to the person learning or not um, not formally, not having been formally taught um, to the students. Um, it's like childcare, like the whole world mm -hmm. operates because of it. Uh, everybody needs it uh, and yet it nobody values it and nobody wants to pay for it. Uh, and so, so many scholars of South Asia have had language training, have had rigorous language training, could not do what they do without that rigorous language training, speak with great love for their language teachers, understand that's really where everything got started. Uh, and yet here we are, language teachers, no job security, just nothing bad, poorly paid. And I apologies to the, uni the university that might be out there that's not doing that email me, let me know, I'll correct myself in the podcast, uh, but I'd say it's true enough. I'm sure you have lots of feelings about that. Um, share some, please. Uh, well, I can, I can certainly say that uh, the study of language, uh, particularly the study of a language that I didn't, uh, I wasn't exposed to uh, as a child, um, uh, and certainly uh, wasn't and has never uh, been spoken in my parents' home. Um, uh, it was something that, you know, completely transformed my life. Um, yeah. But I was fortunate in a sense. So you asked about my journey to South Asia. And one part of that journey that I don't often talk about because it, it requires going way back uh, is that my mother studied linguistics at UC Berkeley in the 1970s and uh, focused on uh, Mandarin and Cantonese. 
Uh, and so when I was growing up, although she never spoke with me, much to my chagrin, uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, I, I watched my mother speaking a language that we didn't speak at home right. uh, and creating friendships and sort of developing uh, relationships uh, through language. And so the question as to, you know, of whether or not I would study languages when I was, you know, in high school and college, this, it, it wasn't really a question. It was yeah. just a question of which languages and yeah. what was I interested in. When I found out that um, uh, the, the name of the main form of the Chinese language that's uh, used in English, that is to say Mandarin, is not actually a Chinese word, but is in fact a, a, a Sanskrit word, which we have in Hindi and Urdu. Uh, it comes from mantri. Uh, and that this word uh, mantri uh, was probably brought into English by uh, traders in uh, Malaysia uh, who were using this word to describe uh, ministers, diplomats, uh, who were coming down from what we now think of as sort of mainland China uh, and who brought this language. Uh, and at least this is sort of my understanding of the story. But the, the theory, of course, is that that's where the word Mandarin comes from, right? Is that uh, it's Mandarin language, right? Uh, and um, to think about how the English language's perception of language community in China is actually mediated through this kind of Sanskritic register, which is very much a part of Hindi Urdu, or to think about the fact that, you know, that English idiom, oh, so-and-so thinks he's the big cheese, right? That the cheese in that idiom has nothing to do with fermented curds, right? That's Hindi Urdu's Persian borrowing, cheese meaning a thing. So-and-so's the big thing these yeah, days. Yeah, right? yeah, oh. yeah. Oh, we could spend hours doing yeah, this. So, <laughs> I know, I, I, don't, I, won't, I won't carry on with the list if of If you want to hear but... more of this, then oh. join Max's Urdu class at Stanford <laughs> or at Berkeley, um, or just drop by my office for a cup of tea and me nerding out about language, <laughs> uh, and I can do it endlessly. Um, in addition, you can also look at your book called Urdu Vocabularies. That's a book that's already out, right? Yes, that came out with Edinburgh University Press in uh, the spring of 2021. And you talk about these, the kind of the Urdu in English uh, as part of that? I do, yeah. I look at all of these kinds of uh, shared uh, histories, direct borrowing as well as uh, sort of proto-Indo-European roots that connect English and Urdu, uh, Arab borrowings into English from Arabic through Turkish, but the same word is borrowed into Urdu through Persian. And I talk a lot about uh, how those I'm gonna, things, As uh, soon as yeah. we're done recording, I'm going to look this up. This is amazing. <laughs> um, let's talk about your role in the Journal of Urdu Studies. Uh, do you want to say more about it? Sure. Um, so I uh, uh, co-founded the Journal of Urdu Studies um, and am now uh, one of the editors of the journal. Um, and uh, we uh, founded the journal in, oh gosh, it was 2018 or 19, post-pandemic. All dates seem to kind of yeah, blur no, together. Yeah, no, just before, you founded before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, yeah. right. <laughs> um, But uh, we founded it because, uh, of course, um, you know, the great institution of the annual of Urdu studies had uh, shut down uh, 
uh, several years before that. And uh, the sense among some of us in the Urdu studies world was that we really needed a, uh, a journal uh, to kind of, you know, pull uh, from scholarship uh, and also to kind of create a place for debates in the field to unfold and to kind of, in the most capacious way possible, define a space in academic discourse for Urdu studies as, as a discipline, right? Uh, as a discipline that's covers a wide range of fields and all of that, but it nonetheless uh, is a discipline uh, in itself uh, and a place for um, for the, that sort of uh, discipline to, to grow and develop. And um, the goals of the journal, uh, I mean, there are lots of different goals, um, but one of them was uh, actually to expand what Urdu studies means uh, mm -hmm. in uh, the academy uh, in our time. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the annual of Urdu studies uh, was uh, and continues to be, it's a, I mean, it, it's no longer uh, published, but uh, the volumes of that journal are absolutely a, a, a treasure trove uh, of information, knowledge, thinking, uh, debate, uh, uh, translation knowledge, language-based, language learning knowledge. Um, and, um, and we really wanted to make sure that uh, that there that we didn't lose this kind of institution, but at the same time, we wanted the the Journal of Urdu Studies, which is uh, published by by Brill. Uh, we wanted the Journal of Urdu Studies uh, not just to be about uh, literature in a kind of a which is mostly what the annual of Urdu Studies was about, not exclusively, but most of the articles published in the annual. Uh, were, were on uh, topics of, of literature and a lot of, lot of amazing work on Munto and progressive literature and these kinds of things. Um, but we really wanted the journal to, to expand and we wanted, we wanted to have a space in which it, it, was, it was possible to think about, uh, I, I'm sort of uh, trained uh, uh, both uh, in area studies um, and uh, also, uh, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, by Gail Minot as a sort of an intellectual historian. And, and when I was coming up with what I thought I wanted the vision for this journal to be, one of the things that I kept thinking about was, we need more scholarship on the history of ideas in Urdu. And we need a place in which something like a review of the history of ideas might be, uh, might be, um, can, can be published and can be talked about and worked through with a bunch of scholars who are all working on Urdu, uh, but doing it um, from different perspectives. And so uh, when we founded the journal, the idea was, of course, to publish on literature, which is, you know, I mean, that's my main field of training uh, and, and also the, the field uh, in which uh, other members of the, of the editorial board and the advisory board are trained in, but also uh, to really make Urdu this kind of point of intersection among all of these different disciplines and, and sort of discourses. And so uh, that's what we've tried to do. And so if you go to uh, our website, you'll find articles that uh, cover a really wide range. We have, uh, you know, studies of, um, uh, you know, the, the tradition of scholarship on uh, sort of um, Arabic language uh, philosophy uh, in the pre-modern period, 
um, and everything from that uh, all the way through uh, works on uh, you know uh, Urdu popular magazines from the mid 20th century. Um, and so it's been a really exciting experience to edit a journal uh, that's getting um, sort of bringing together uh, scholars and voices that um, uh, you know I, I can't think of another, way or umbrella under which to bring those kinds of voices together. And it's really kind of exciting and inspiring to be a part of the project that's doing that. Um, and so uh, the great thing is that if you, sorry, a little bit of self, not self-promotion, journal promotion. Yeah. Do it. Um, if you go to Brill's website, you can sign up for uh, two years uh, of free subscription. If you belong to a, an academic institution that has uh, an institutional subscription, you should be able to access the journal along with other uh, journals from Brill. But you can get a, a free uh, two-year subscription to the journal uh, through Brill's website. Uh, and um, we always uh, make available from each issue uh, one research paper and one book review freely available online. So you can uh, go and access those that way. Um, uh, and we have uh, some really exciting stuff that's coming up. So I can sort of uh, preview that uh, we have a, a double issue coming up and it's a double issue. Uh, it should be out in a, in a couple of months. Uh, and it's a double issue in order to accommodate a series of uh, translation articles focused on sort of world history through the eyes of Urdu writers. So, so much of Urdu studies has really focused on South Asia and uh, you know the the history and traditions of South Asia and Urdu is seen as a kind of lens through which to look at and examine South Asia mm -hmm. and part of the uh, this really interesting project that these writers uh, are engaged in uh, is to translate scholarship that that looks outward uh and that you know that urdu is actually this really amazing language for thinking not just about the experiences of writers uh in south asia or in south asian diaspora but for thinking about uh world histories traditions philosophies uh and um and so that was another uh sort of um, an idea that i was hoping would uh, manifest in the journal. And uh, fortunately, it seems to be one that uh, these writers really uh, have pursued. And so I'm really excited about them. the articles are amazing. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited um, uh, to see that issue come out. I mean, all, everything that has been published has been amazing, but I just thought we will link to mind. the Brill website in the show notes so people can go and get their free subscription if they don't have an institutional subscription. Um, this has been an incredibly rich conversation. Thank you so much for making time for us uh, in this very busy schedule. I'm going to have to look at my calendar, rethink what I do with my day uh, when <laughs> I think about <laughs> uh, what your day must look like. Um, but thank you and uh, good luck with everything that you have going on. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I want to thank Soham Shiva for the uh, intro and outro, never perhaps more appropriate than to this particular podcast, uh, where uh, Soham sings Gazal and Simbrat Mataru for post-production.
Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.